I guess during my time at school, I was pretty interested in business. It was always a massive passion for me that I kind of developed over. So started off with the quintessential journey of any entrepreneur, which is selling sweets. Yeah. So about, Same. <laughs> so about 30, I think about 12 or 13, started selling sweets. And I went to you know, a decent grammar school at home, didn't get pocket money. And, and the real pivotal moment for me was that everyone was talking about PlayStation and PS3 at the time. We, didn't, we couldn't afford to buy it. My parents couldn't afford to buy it. So my way of getting one, that was my strong desire at the time. Yeah. It's basically the selling sweets. It's a lot of sweets. It was, I actually made enough in about two weeks wow. because I bought something that was really popular. I went wholesale, so bought them at the price and sold them at the same price the local shops did. And yeah. also had a captive market because no one can do school grounds for lunch. Thank you so much for clicking on this episode of Millennial Entrepreneur. The ambition of the podcast is to show relatable stories from young entrepreneurs doing some incredible things to inspire the next generation, including you listening wherever you are. We've been doing this podcast for over three years and the ambition has not changed. The only thing that has changed is the scale of where we want to go. We want to bring on bigger guests for you guys to show more and more relatable and inspiring stories from young entrepreneurs across the world. The majority of you guys listening haven't subscribed to the podcast yet. All you have to do is click that subscribe button wherever you're listening on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now allow us to bring on bigger guests and ask the questions to them that you really want to hear. And it really is that simple. So thank you again for clicking on the podcast and enjoy the episode. So take me back, like where did this whole journey begin? I guess during my time at school, I was pretty interested in business. Um, it was always a massive passion for me that I kind of developed over. So started off with the quintessential journey of any entrepreneur, which is selling sweets. Yeah, so about, <laughs> same. So about 30, I think about 12 or 13, started selling sweets. And I went to you know, a decent grammar school, um, but you know, at home, didn't get pocket money. Mm-hmm. And, and the real pivotal moment for me was that everyone was talking about PlayStation. I think the PS3 at the time. Showing my age a bit now, PS3 at the time. And I didn't have, we, didn't, we couldn't afford to buy it. My parents couldn't afford to buy it. And I was wanted to get one. So my way of getting one, that was my strong desire at the time. Yeah. It's basically was selling sweets. It's a lot of sweets. It was, I actually made enough in about two weeks. Wow. Because I bought something that was really popular. I went wholesale, so bought them at the price and sold them at the same price the local shops did. And yeah. obviously had a captive market because no one could leave school grounds for lunch. I've said this before on like a recording. I, I don't understand why schools like clamp down on something like that. I know there's like, mm. I know there's a lot of, I don't know, health and stuff like that, but every single, like I'd say the majority of the people that I've had on this podcast, a lot of their journeys start off by something like that. 100%. I think because the beauty of it is you are in a safe space, you're in a safe environment. Yeah. And you're encouraged or I guess you're encouraging yourself to be curious and one of the most essential ingredients for entrepreneurship is curiosity right agree with you entrepreneurship is about solving a problem Mm. and the problem at the time just so happens to be that people don't have sweets and they want them yeah (laughs) right and I think and a great entrepreneur that I know as kind of almost like a mentor he tells and he actually runs a collection of schools but he tells his kids who go and he's the chief exec he tells them to break the rules he encourages, he actually rewards them based on breaking the rules mm. in his own school because he understands the limitations or the box that that puts you in yeah. and what that can do to children over time as they grow into adults. I think like, I, I mean, I've, I've had issues with certain people because I do break rules. Like I'm saying this on a recording, but like, <laughs> like I think there is some element where you need to go against the grain to certain degrees to, to, to become an entrepreneur because you can't accept the way that things are being done, right? And that's, I think that honestly, like what makes, what sparks that, that level of creativity to do things differently. 
Yeah, 100%. I think entrepreneurship, I guess, down to its core definition, is about solving, again, solving a problem that exists in the world. Yeah. And you have to be uncomfortable or disapprove of the way things are done in the world at the moment in your certain industry or field or area that you want to get into to be able to then spot the problem and solve it. Mm. And I think breaking rules is one thing and there's different ways to go about it, right? Entrepreneurship is about spotting a problem, solving it by serving other people. And you're breaking the rules or convention to serve other people and solve a problem in a positive Obviously, the flip side of that is breaking rules and solving up not serving people. And that's when you start to get into territory. So entrepreneurship yeah. fundamentally is about serving other people. And I think as long as you see it that way, and as long as you see that as the purpose of entrepreneurship, I think there's a very different drive to that or very different definition to breaking the rules, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. So where did the, where did the real estate business come in? So you were at school because you started young, right? Yes. So... Again, was pretty experimental throughout school. Uh, got really interested, was studying economics and politics and history and trying to get kind of a, a stronger worldview on things. And I thought, how does the world currently work? Yeah. Trying to really get into that and understand it, but also looking and understanding disruption at the time, right? So we're in the era where Amazon's starting to boom, Uber, um, and basically the birth uh, or rebirth of the internet and how it disrupted previously long status, I think Netflix at the time as well. And I thought this is really interesting because these businesses are making a massive difference in a very, very short space of time, utilizing something as powerful as the internet. And we've all got access to it, mm. right? So the internet's created accessibility for entrepreneurship more than it ever has before, ever. So that's when I started getting really interested in what have problems that need solving. Um, I've been very open and honest to say that property wasn't necessarily a passion for me. My passion was about how backwards it was, yeah. how undisrupted the process was. So real estate agents in the UK were the second most hated profession after politicians. And, mm. and that's bearing in mind that they are the custodians of the biggest that most people own, which is their homes. Something so personal to you, but you hate the person dealing with the transaction. Mm. How does that make sense? Yeah. And at the same time, you're giving away one, maybe 2%, sometimes 3% of the property value for someone to come around Here's the bathroom, here's the bedroom. And of course I'm simplifying it quite a lot, right? That to me felt like there was a better way to do that. Mm. Um, so when I was six, um, started building an app called House Smart, was an app which connected buyers and sellers directly. But long story short, needed a lot of capital to get that off the ground because you're disrupting not just real estate selling process, but the buying, the buying process. So for example, with Rightmove and Zooplo, you're disrupting that process as well, yeah. which is a massive goal. So came on to 17 to during my A-levels, carried on looking into the market, and that's when Doorstep, my first kind of, I guess, proper real estate business was born, was let's cut a lot of the overheads in the process. Let's connect, um, let's have a team of my agents across the country, operate from one head office and use technology to help us get to the other to places quicker. Mm. So automating a lot of the processes through technology, and that allowed us to charge 99 quid to sell a property rather than several thousand pounds. I just don't understand how you you, un, you understood that problem at 16. Like I, a lot of the entrepreneurs that I speak to, they've encountered the problem themselves and solved that problem with technology, mm. like you just mentioned, but you were 16, you've never bought a house, like you've never gone close to a house, right, yeah. I assume. So like, I, I'm interested in how you actually stumbled across that. Sure, so 
it actually comes from quite, a, I guess, an early stage experience for me, which was, um, so I'm, I'm a carer to both my parents who are deaf, and we moved out from Hertfordshire into London. <clears throat> so we moved out from Hertfordshire into London, and, uh, probably at, when I was about 11 or 12 years old. And in that process, that's when my first ever interaction ever with real estate agents. So this selling our property in Hertfordshire, yeah. When you're moving into London, I know it's pretty a lot very expensive compared to somewhere outside of London and we needed every penny. Every penny mattered. Yeah. And that's when I first got a sense of what did they actually do, the real estate agent, which frankly was nothing special. The market was very busy at the time. And they charged us a lot of money. Mm. And every penny really mattered because we had to rent for several years, we couldn't afford a property in London and we we're kind of between houses. And that to me I felt actually that was where I think the core of the problem came to. The naturally seeing other people go through the experience and understanding the market better. It was a combination of, of a problem that my parents experienced yeah. family, um, but also understanding the market better. And that's kind of where I stumbled upon the property space. Got you, got you. That's really interesting. So you, you understood the problem very well. You understood that these guys charge a lot of money for things that frankly, like anyone really do. Yeah. Shout out to the real estate agent. But like, <laughs> I guess what, what was the sort of next step for you? You were 16 years old, like what, you didn't you didn't have any sort of experience within tech you were selling sweets i guess like yep. so what were you what were you what was the next step there so i started obviously working on that evolved version of the business which was doorsteps around 17 years old and for me it was about learning and experimenting mm. which i've realized that entrepreneurship over time having started other businesses since then it is just a continuous learning journey you're constantly investing in yourself and it was a space I knew nothing about. So I had two choices in terms of my mindset at the time was either take the approach, scarcity, I don't know enough about the market. Should yeah. I be getting into a space that I don't understand or know about well enough? Or the opposite, which is to disrupt the status quo. Surely you're better suited to do that coming from outside the status quo. Mm. And that fresh perspective and lack of baggage that I had gave me the power or the confidence to say, actually, no, I am the right person to disrupt this space, or I'm one of the right people to do this because I haven't been in the space for long enough. Mm-hmm. Because people that come into the space or have been in the space already have pre-built preconceptions of how things are done. Yeah. And going back to what we were saying, you need to go against the grain. And if, yeah. you, if you have the do that, willing to have the confidence ability to do that, it's about approaching it from a different perspective. So that's when I started kind of building guessing the website, so very basic kind of freelancers abroad, borrowed, money, borrowed some money from family basically to get the basic website up and running. Yeah. Um, and then my focus in that time was largely proof of concept. And that was spending hours on kind of market research, the basic website. This is all during my A-levels. Yeah. I had one customer that actually found our website during my A-levels. What were they paying for? Like what was... Like- so 99 quid was for us to take photos and put their property up on the market. On the market, so right move, right move, and sell it. Right now, because of the first one that was completely unexpected, I had zero infrastructure in place. So I went to the property myself. Wait, wait, wait! wait. Actually, I want to stop <laughs> you there. I, that's that's uh, people. People think that you need to have all the infrastructure in place before you start processing that first customer. That's wrong. Like, well, it's not wrong. It's just that I don't think it's an. In a, I don't think it's an efficient way of doing things. What you just did there was you set up the the the, the front sort of 
facing people will encounter when it comes to this sort of service. Someone paid for it and you're like, okay, now the work starts. Now I know that someone's interested and now I can actually, you know, execute and actually infrastructure rather than building infrastructure up front. Yeah, 100%. I think the reason for that is we're starting now get perfect later, right? Or anything else of, I guess, high performance. The hardest part is starting, right? People find it a lot easier to finish the job once they've started and getting it out there and deeply minimizes mm. your risk. I think, I, think, I think you are right. Like starting is the hardest part, but I think people have a wrong perception of what starting is. People think starting means that you have to build everything from, from the ground up. When actually, as you said, the internet's made it easier than ever to actually start a, a proof of concept, to, to test things out very cheaply. Like, so you can you start fairly, you know, compared to a lot of you know, previous generations, it's a lot easier than it was before. Um, yeah, go yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. We should be insanely grateful for the access to technology we have now, right? Yeah. If you have a phone or a laptop or both, you can start something. And frankly, believing that we don't have the resources to do that if you do things is um, either frankly being ungrateful or unaware, mm. right? We have access to these things. Even a social media account now is an enabler to start monetizing or start a business yeah, in your own yeah, way. I, and, I agree. And remember, business is everything from, I guess, like I said, a home bakery all the way to a, a huge a billion dollar entrepreneur or Elon mm. Musk, for example. That's massive different scales of entrepreneurship. It doesn't mean you can't start or don't have the to. And most people, I guess, use perfectionism as veil for, right? And that is the problem. People are scared to start and they use perfectionism as a way of deterring or deferring yeah. that start because they think they need to be perfect. Yeah. But imagine spending three years, hundreds of thousands of pounds in a proposition to realize actually the market doesn't want it when you go to market. That's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. Right? The market doesn't right. lie, the market yeah. customer is king. No matter how you think your proposition is, unless the market wants it to, it means nothing. Yeah. Right. So someone, someone paid 99 pounds, what are they paying for? Just to list the property on Right Move Zuka yeah. and for us to get it sold. Take photos so, and all that. Um, so I didn't know what to do, right? So I yeah, went down yeah. to the Elf and started taking photos. Was it <laughs> local to you or was it far? Like uh, East Sussex, which is hours away from where I was. So wait, I paid- wait, wait, did, you, <laughs> did you open this up nationwide from, from the beginning? From the beginning, yeah. Which, <laughs> so stupid. Which, yeah, it was. <laughs> but yeah, go on. So I'm nationwide thinking that no one's going to see the website. No one's going to see it. Right now, it's just for me to market test. And someone went online and paid. And I thought, he's paid. You got to deliver now. I've got to deliver, right? Yeah. I'm not going to not provide, I'm not going to turn the customer down, right? This is my first ever customer, Ian, which I will never forget ever. No, you never do. Um, and my brother-in-law at the time, um, or my sister's boyfriend at the time, I said, I'll give you 20 quid. You drive me down there so I can take some photos of this guy's house. And they thought I was crazy, right? My family thought I was crazy. I'm didn't have a driving from, license. Didn't have a driving license. Uh, I was 16 at the time, I think, maybe 17. Um, meant to be studying for my A-levels. And he said, great, let's do it. So I went down, took the photos, and we got the property sold. And wow. he gave raving, he had two properties back to back, so it was 198 quid, technically, which was great. And you didn't take any commission, it was just that upfront no 99 pound fee. And it was a half a million pound house with a swimming pool. Wow. So he actually saved probably about seven or eight grand between the two houses. Yeah. And he was amazed. He sung our praises, he went online, he wrote reviews, he told friends locally, right? Which gave us a couple more customers later down the line. Mm. But that showed me proof of concept. And more importantly, confidence. For me, 
that this could work. Mm. Like, hold on, he's saved that much money. Imagine how much money we could save every household in Britain if there's a better way to do it. Yeah. And it also showed me the power of word of mouth. He focused, he got um, five-star reviews for us online. He wrote five-star reviews for us. And that word of mouth was more powerful than any paid marketing I could have done at the time. Anything. Because people credit comes from other consumers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, continued on that journey for the rest of that year. And then when it came to um, deciding on whether to go to university or not, I got pretty good grades at A-levels, so I had choices. Um, so I deferred entry to university initially, which was looking between Oxford and UCL. Um, and I thought, that proof of concept stuck with me. I thought, mm-hmm. I want to give this a go. Yeah. And then spent probably 100 hours, hundreds of hours a week, um, week on week for the first three months, knocking on doors, trying to get that second customer. And it never came. Really? Just consistently knocking on doors in winter, door knocking on properties that had for sale signs, thinking, right, this is a great acquisition strategy. Yeah. Saying, all right, come and say house for 99 quid. And people shut the door on me. Wait, why do you think that is? Like, you, you just, you know, proved worked, right? So why was that second customer so difficult to get? So I think at the time was the market. So it was so difficult. What year was it? So this is 2017, I think, 2016, late 2016. And people found it so difficult to believe that you could sell your house for 99, firstly, right? Too good to be true feeling. But also the fact that- you're like scamming. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, The fact that I was a 17 year old kid on their doorstep asking for them to, (laughs) to, to pay that money. (laughs) <laughs> and they thought this just doesn't make sense. This is real. Yeah. So I went through that, went through cold calling, took on commission only salespeople, took on old school friends who were on gap years. I tried pretty much everything. And eventually I dropped it and said, right, we're going to sell people's homes for free. I want to show them that we can do this, yeah. that this new technology driven way of working work, which by the way, we had, by the way, we had no tech at that point, yeah. right? Because we didn't have afford to have the infrastructure. But eventually, word of mouth grew because we continued to take people on for free. We continued to get properties online. Um, and eventually, pretty good word of mouth, good reviews, good growth. And by middle of 2017, we raised our first round, which was uh, 400 grand, basically, online um, investment. But before we go on, I want to tell you guys very quickly about the podcast sponsor, Zencaster. Now, I know so many of you guys have a business. And as you guys know as well, I have my own business called Wing that focuses on in-person networking and looking for new sort of marketing channels for, for people to and business owners to, you know, learn about our product. You guys are part of the new podcast revolution, right? There's so many more people listening to podcasts than there were before. And so as a business owner myself, I've been looking more and more increasingly into podcast advertising as a way more effective way than display advertising. And I mean, the data as well shows it. So like 67% of listeners remember brands and 63% of them actually make a purchase after hearing them on a podcast. The trouble is podcast ads are nowhere near as targeted as social media ads and they don't have the same level of data than you would expect through Facebook, you know, Instagram, or Google advertising. And this is where Zencaster's come in. So whether you want to diversify your ad spend as a new marketing stream or test out podcasting ads, Zencaster's new creator network makes it easy for brands like ours and yours to connect with podcasters. And Zencaster's mission here is to make podcast advertising as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. And the amazing thing is Zencaster actually matches you as the brand to the best podcasts that have the same sort of audience as you. And so your product gets to the right audience and you can maximize your advertising campaign budget. 
As a business owner, I'm always willing to try new marketing strategies. And so this one really caught my attention. And so if you are interested in sponsoring this show or other podcast ads for your business, then go to the link in the description, fill out the contact information so Zencast can help you and you can bring your story to life. So back on with the show. How did you, but even like offering to sell their houses free still sounds like a scam, right? Even though like it's it's not, but like, so how, so even still, like how did you get those second customers? I guess at the time it was just offering a risk position and being honest. Yeah. Being honest, saying that we're a new business. Here's what we do. Here's what we propose to do. And bear in mind, these were people selling their properties on Gumtree, for example, right? So people that didn't really like estate agents either. So that we are here to be the antithesis to estate agents. We are here your perception of estate agents our mission our mission is not just to save you money we think estate agents are crap and we want to change the way the industry works and some people resonated with that yeah so i think again it's finding that problem to solve that solves a deep desire for people not just okay save a bit of cash but actually you're on gumtree because you don't like estate how about we join you in that but we can do the job better and on your behalf Mm. and uh, some people resonated and thankfully and and that's when it started to to grow yeah, I think, honestly, I think being transparent with people, it doesn't just go for selling to regular people, but even B2B and just being honest that you're a small business. And like, for instance, my business, we just had a a big pitch to, I won't say their name, but like a huge bank that everyone mm. knows, massive investment bank. And we're a tiny business. There's like five of us, like us. Mm. But we were, we were honest. We were like, yeah, we're a small team, but we dedicate a lot of our time to you type of thing. Like, I think being honest and like, I guess pretending that you're a big business yeah. like I think that is actually a strength and yeah being honest about your mission as well like what you just mentioned so not just focusing on this is the process but this is what doing it this is Absolutely. like why we were born I think that's again very important to to emphasize when it comes to to selling or like showing people what you're about yeah I absolutely completely agree I think people ultimately if you're honest and you can't control that that's the case right if you're at a certain stage you need to think about, can you control the fact that you're a certain size? If not, don't worry about it. Don't, but we're sitting there being anxious about the fact that you're not a certain size and therefore having a sense of we're not good enough because of X, Y, Z. It's complete nonsense, right? It's your mindset and how you approach it. So again, let's go back to the fundamentals of, I think, confidence in that case. When you're approaching a big pitch or a big business or something where you shouldn't be, mm. you should feel a sense of imposter syndrome. Because imposter syndrome means you're sitting outside of your comfort zone and sitting outside of your zone is exactly where you grow. So imposter syndrome is good? I think it's, I think it's essential to be depending on your perspective on it. So the way I see it is everyone is on their own journey. You are ahead of many people and there's many people ahead of you. Mm. But again, instead of fretting about where they are or where someone else is, the fact that you are feeling a sense of imposter syndrome means you're uncomfortable and uncomfortable is how growth happens so if you can lean into that it will give you a much greater sense of confidence in the places where where you are right and i think i had lunch a few years ago with john roberts the founder of Mm ao.com really really great guy amazing businessman and he said keep putting yourself in places where you don't belong to be yeah right and that stuck with me because i thought that is spot on because how do we grow if certainly in places where we're comfortable we're kind of support this person in the room you know how do you grow as a person when you do that and i think it's just not possible so i think i completely agree with what you said yeah that's really interesting so let's move on from so that real estate business 
what was the sort of like journey there? So you you started selling you started selling the propositions for, and then I assume like you went back to the ninety nine pound model once you got mm. more than, and um, so yeah, what was the sort of journey up until sort of like recently? So that was a really interesting journey. Um, we kind of built a lot of traction. So as I said, we raised our first round of funding in mid twenty seven. And that was for 400,000. And that was starting to kickstart growth. And we got a lot of PR after that, which was great because it gave us a lot of organic. I was reading about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that would have been end of 2017. And yeah, because we were valued quite highly because of the market at the time, basically. I think it was more because of your age at the time. I think mm. it was like one of those things where now it's fairly commonplace for mm. just like 22, three year olds to. To, to get funded to that level of scale. Yeah. Whereas back then I didn't really see that many people doing it. Yeah. I think that's why I remember reading it because at the time, I think I was like the same age. I think I am the same age as you. Mm. I remember reading it being like, wow, like I, I didn't, I, that was before I, I met you, like a long time before I met you. But I remember reading that being like, I didn't know that we can do that. Mm. I didn't know that it's the opportunities there for people our age to actually be able to do that. Like. Yeah, a big motivation yeah. of why I started this podcast really is to show that you can. Um, but yeah, I just, that's why I remember reading it. No, it's really, really nice to hear and really valuable because I wasn't actually a fan of the PR and the public platform and everything else. Um, I think kind of being more private or kind of confidence personally is more admirable. But I think the reason I ended up kind of pushing it, A, because it grew the business a lot. Yeah, of um, course. And ended up kind of, I guess, being part of it was because it grew the business a lot, but also exactly what you said. If my story can even spark for one person out there to say, oh, wow, that's doable, and yeah. remove some limiting belief, change mindset of one person to say, oh, we can this. Mm. Because going back to what we were saying about schools, it's, I believe the education system is, is putting people in a box over time to say, you can't do this, yeah. don't do this, don't do that. So if that sparked from sale, you, you, you actually can do that, right? It's doable. Yeah. Um, that point of reference for them changes entirely. So um, yeah, that was, I guess, a, a positive benefit out of that. So, so after got, that PR, PR, yeah, grew quite rapidly um, after that for the next couple of years. So we raised funding again to 18, so the following year, and that was about 900,000. So we'd, we'd just done just shy of 1.5 million then. And that was to fund obviously the business growth. Yeah. So a lot of marketing, again, really pushing that word of mouth, um, which is fantastic. We got to the point where by kind of 2020, we were the third largest online estate agency. We'd sold over a billion pounds worth of homes. There's about 60 of us in the team, um, including kind of the agents across the country. Um, and we saved customers more importantly, over about 15, 20 million pounds in estate agency fees. So that core goal, the reason we existed in the first place, yeah was starting to finally come to fruition, um, which was which was great. And that led to over 5,000 reviews as well online, um, which again, that mission of changing the perception of a state agency. Oh, it's a young Asian guy with a bunch of people across the country with no physical office space. You know, that was what we're trying to do to change the perception. Mm. And how did you, you grow it to that sort of scale, right? You said that when you were first trying it, you tried like a marketing thing in the book, like you hired all these, you hired your friends on gap years and like you did yeah. door to door. Like, so what, what was the sort of key thing that, that grew you from that once you got funding to, to the level where, you know, you were the third largest estate agent in, in the UK? So I think at the time I realized that actually the difficulty with that market is 
there is no avatar consumer, right? Just because someone supports Arsenal football team and they're aged between 40 and 50, they're going to be selling their property. Mm -hmm. There is no demographic to that, right? There is some vague overview of the demographic of people that own a home. Yeah. But how do you catch someone that's selling a property? So for me, that was the biggest marketing challenge I've ever faced, even to date. So actually, my focus was the product, the people, the service, right? I thought if we can invest heavily enough in our service, in our platform and the tech, so basically start with the customer and work backwards, constantly on what does the consumer need? What makes the user journey better? Yeah. What makes their lives easier? And how do we encourage them to talk about us based on a positive journey? We can then grow. So really, it genuinely was organic, word-of-mouth-driven growth, mm-hmm. focusing on what the customer needs were. I think that's like a more effective approach than what I've seen a lot of other people do where it's like, I think both are relevant to be fair, but they they focus on quantitative demographic Mm. metrics. So they focus on age, gender, where they live. Like it's all all very quantitative. Whereas I think those qualitative customer persona details are actually very, if not more important than that. So it's like, what sort of, what motivates them as people? Like, how do they how do they think about certain things like all of that stuff lets you paint a good picture of like who these people and yes you're like one might support arsenal one might i don't know be a farmer like they're, mm-hmm. they're just very different people however their motivations and what drives them as people when it comes to selling houses are probably the same like they don't uh they don't mind going non-traditional they don't mm-hmm. mind like looking at alternative solutions and all that type of thing right i think it's probably went through as like the journey is like how do I define these people and then like you you thought more like on the qualitative approach yeah absolutely that so it was trying to understand what is that journey before they sell a property yeah what are they doing how are they researching and as you said what are their motivations so what are the key reasons that people look to sell a property and something you'll see it's actually largely quite emotive about to have a, about to have a child yeah so birth or death generally divorce marriage it's a very emotive key milestones in the journey which is why the process is so emotional for people as well i see so for us that's why again service was so key because and you can't you can't capture that through like quantitative stuff really no absolutely not absolutely yeah. not and i think a lot of that is investing in the people we had and i think we could have gone a lot further but i think for how far we did come is is investing in our team to really take the time to understand that. Some of service staff who actually care. Mm-hmm. You know, a- a- caring is underrated, right? Yeah, yeah. Whereas it's simplicity and actually giving a crap. So people actually care about the person on the other end of the phone, which is hard to do, right? When you've got, you know, at our peak, we were getting eight, 900 inbound calls a day. Wow. And that's with all of our infrastructure technology-wise as well, right? So a lot of things are automated, but we're still getting eight, 900 calls a day. So it's hard always to tell a customer service member of staff you're going to take 100 calls today but you've actually got to care about each one yeah and that comes in the ethos and and really the fluffy stuff that takes time to build and also showing that you care right as a management team in a leadership fashion or, or the rest of the team as well mm. okay so i guess the key growth there was build a product where people would recommend it it is it is that word of mouth again yeah especially in this space for sure okay got you and then what was the sort of like the transition? So you raised that much money. What, where is it up until now? So after we raised that money, obviously went through um, COVID. So the pandemic was pretty difficult for, 
everyone and, and I guess for most businesses, but we're very grateful to have come out of that um, profitable because people did look to digital solutions. The a lot of people are selling their houses as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. So more transactions in the space at some point. Uh, people looked to digital offerings and solutions and were more aware of them, I guess. And the government had a lot of relief programs. So we had a pretty strong year and obviously our strongest year in that year. Um, but during the pandemic, I also started a separate social enterprise called AKR, uh, which at the time we became a DWP partner, having no experience in the space. I basically wanted to help young people at the time because I think the pandemic and youth unemployment sparked um, a, a massive... <coughs> so I'll go again. <coughs> so at the time, so during the pandemic, I started a social enterprise called AKR, which, and youth unemployment grew to about 25% during the pandemic. Yeah. So for me, I felt I sat in that age category, which was 16 to 24, I think it was at the time. And I just joined the Prince's Trust Rise campaign as a board member. So I was supporting their mission around supporting young people into enterprise, into work. And I thought, how do I get more involved in this? Because I almost had that itch. Actually, I could be delivering more value to the world mm. than just this business alone. Wrongly. And that's when I started AKR. So social enterprise, which worked with the DWP. So the government start program. We had a pipeline of over five, 600 people that we were putting into work, um, which was great. Then obviously when the kickstart scheme ended, we kind of started pivoting into traineeships, apprenticeships, and now on the journey to becoming a registered training provider with Ofsted. So that's when I made the transition out of doorsteps. So kind of left a management team in charge. And I thought I want to spend a bit of time on the social enterprise and looking at social impact as a whole. Yeah. So that was kind of my transition during 2021, I guess. So a year and a bit ago. So, but you were doing the real estate business at the same time as a social enterprise. Yes, yeah, so there was a big crossover between the two. Um, but at one point, I then took a step back from the real estate business, kind of mid one, mm. to, to focus on the social enterprise and also look at what other problems in the world that I wanted to solve. Because I realized about myself that what I really enjoyed about the journey is the building. So I'm very yeah, passionate about startups. That's, that's the question I was going to ask you because, like, you said that real estate wasn't your passion. Then you moved on to social enterprise, and we'll talk about your next business as well. Like, they're all, they're all very different. Mm. Like, so you're not motivated by solving a problem within a certain industry and making people's lives better in that industry. Like, so what, what is the motivation there to start different things? Good question. I think it's still one that I'm figuring out, to be entirely honest. And I think I've noticed that entrepreneurship itself is a passion for me. So I think there's, for me, I think there's a micro and kind of a macro based motivation or reason I'm committed to to doing what I do yeah. so on a macro level my passion is entrepreneurship and building startups so taking something from idea to reality that journey is very very exciting for me um, it's very fast paced and it's kind of the environment that I like to be in in terms yeah. of building fast paced making mistakes learning and I've built I think a lot of resilience to that journey you know with doorsteps we almost ran out of cash three times right in that journey, like literally two or three weeks runway and your back's against the wall. You've got to sadly, you know, slash everyone's pay, get rid of people and rebuild from there. And we need to do that. And that wasn't, it was scary for me at the time, but looking back, it's actually quite interesting because yeah. what I realized about entrepreneurship is there is no end goal. The beauty of entrepreneurship, the person you become in the process. Yeah. See, I've, I've always had issue with this because it's like, I always, I, I'm actually motivated. You know, I've discovered that about myself. Where like, 
I I keep trying to like build and build and build. And before I thought it was because I want to get to an end goal. So I was like, okay, if I just like it's one big client or like if I mm. if I build this new product, then like I would have made it. Or like if I won this award, then I would have mm. made it. But I've done those and like probably so have you, you know, getting getting funding, getting that all that PR coverage. Mm. But that that feeling doesn't get that 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 itch isn't scratched mm -hmm. like it doesn't yeah. go away so it's just like <laughs> i had moments in my life where i was like am i am i like broken like like <laughs> what what is going on in here where like i just i can't be satisfied i don't know if you have a similar thing yeah totally i think i completely agree and that's when i think over the last few years my focus did shift to and i know everyone says it, it's the destination yeah but genuinely think deeply about what that looks like so for me what I've realized, my biggest fear, sometimes it can come from a place of fear, right? My biggest fear is sitting there at 80 years old with regrets. Looking mm. back, the scariest thing for me is someone looking to my eyes and seeing regret that I didn't fulfill my full potential. Yeah, I, there's this quote that I, I'm not a quote sort of person at all, but there is <laughs> one quote that stuck with me and it still sticks with me now. It's like a person has two, two pains and they have to either, in, they have to endure one of them the pain of regrets or the pain of discipline. Mm -hmm. And I love that quote so much. I don't know who said it, but it's like, yeah, it is an amazing quote. Absolutely. One that was actually, I'll hit back with a quote. It might be appropriate now is, um, life's biggest burden is having nothing to carry. Mm. Right. And that's genuinely how Similar, I feel. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's the past. It, it's how you decide. To, and some people want a simple life and don't need that. Right. And it's not a problem. It's not an issue, but I think the problem is starts to come when you start to attach goals and, psychologically speaking there's something called an arrival fallacy which is you're talking about if i get to this yeah. then i will feel that yeah never happens never right? happens because I know. you get there and the goalposts have moved yeah oh right i thought it would be an audi that made me happy but now i want a lamborghini yeah and it's an endless cycle so if you can shift your focus to are you committed to the process do you is fulfilling or is that person you're becoming is that's what's making you happy because happiness is based happiness is ensued not pursued so how have you how have you like found happiness i guess like because if you're if you're like similar to me where you must have gone on this journey where it's like okay I, you realize that keep you know these achievements and things don't actually fulfill you it's more like the journey that fulfills you so it's just a continuous process so how how is like how do you change your happiness perspective to the end goal to the process because I know a lot of young people suffer with this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's aligning it to that process massively, right? I think the first step is gratitude, right? In the morning, each morning, I've got a bunch of stuff written on my wall. And one of those things is just thank you, mm. right? Because a deep sense of root of, a deep sense, sorry, deep rooted sense of gratitude is important to understand <clears throat> what you've been given You've got food on your table, shelter over your head. Mm. And if you're listening to this, you've got access to the internet, right? So that, we're better off than 90% of the world. I know people say this all the time, but I think it's really important to get that sense of perspective on things because otherwise you get into this box of, I should be here, I should be there, and yeah. it's constant. And I'm, I'm a victim of it myself, right? We all go through it. But I think on a macro level to understand where we are and that deep sense of gratitude is important. And then the journey in terms of, the person you are if you can be motivated by progress for me it was 
They even re- started going to the gym the last couple of years. And the reason I'm still committed, whether it's snowing, whether it's raining, whether I'm ill, whether I'm not ill, whatever it is, yeah. is down to the motivation for progress. It's not about once I have a six pack, I'm done. And that's basically the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, right? Mm. The tie their goals to extrinsic, i.e. external validation on their goals, will be limited. Yeah. So people that go in the lead up to summer, go to the gym and say, right, I need to do this for a summer body. What you're actually saying to yourself to look good for other people in summer. So what you're telling your brain is when it gets to winter, you don't need to work out anymore because they see it. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant volatility. It's a constant fluctuation. Yeah. If you can tell yourself, like in my case, so how do I feel when I go to the gym? I'm mentally more clear. I'm more confident in my own skin. I have, I go to the spa after the gym, so I feel great. And I have a much more productive work day because I've been to the gym. And I feel happy that I've woken up earlier because it gives me a greater sense of purpose. Now that's a much stronger motivation than I need a six pack for summer to yeah. show people that actually I don't care about, right? How did you change that lens though? Do you have moments where, is that a recent sort of shift of mindset or did you always have that? I think it took some time. The time is... Because you had success very young. I said before, like, people raising that level of funding at, at that sort of age was, wasn't really commonplace. It is now, mm. I would say. And a lot's changed in the last few years. Mm. But so, yeah, I'm interested to hear, like, because you were one of the first, I would say, in this country at least. I think at the time, it was a similar thing. I think I went through the journey of, right, we've raised funding now we're successful and I thought hold on that doesn't make make sense because raising funding and running a successful business are two different things and frankly they could be I'm glad you said that because like even in Silicon Valley like people people think like continuously raising money like that's the goal exactly yeah and that's a different discussion yeah and absolutely I think that's potentially the wrong goal if you're as a mean to where you need to be great or solving the problem yeah but it doesn't mean you will be you will be solving the problem right so I think it's having that sense or having that overview and that perspective. And I think in my case, having it quite young was based on, I think, my home life. Being a carer for my parents meant greater responsibility, greater maturity, greater age. And more importantly, I think the sense of, um, I guess, deferred gratification, delayed gratification, I think is single-handedly one of the most or the strongest qualities I've seen in, in great entrepreneurs that I look up to. But it goes back to the same thing though. It's like, I, I completely agree with you. It's like delayed gratification is the core of every successful person I've seen. It's mm. like you put in the work now and something will come in, in the end. Mm. But it's like, it goes back to the same thing we talked about. It was like, okay, how long are you going to delay till? Like, are you going to keep working, keep working, keep working? Because there's no end goal here. Mm. The, the, the end goal is so you go to the next stage and then just keep working more. Or like you change, you change and go into something else, but yeah. you're still in that way. So like, it goes back to the same question. It's like, okay, we know the gratification is good, mm. but like, is there a toxic side to it where you don't really find happiness in like, because there's no, there's no sort of, there is, there, like theoretically, there is no gratification. Yeah, no, no, I, th- I think you're right. I think I see what you mean. I think for me, I should say actually to agree because there can be a point where people are doing it almost against their own will and and almost forcing themselves into it can be toxic. I should add that for me, the things that I've been pursuing within entrepreneurship, because I found that actually I like of entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship for me is the only way 
to have a disproportionate impact on the as a single person mm. right <clears throat> yeah to be the chief you need to have a tribe and the tribe works towards your mission as a chief and that's the only way for me i think you can have a massively disproportionate impact other than roles for example right etc yeah. so i think aside from that so that's my intrinsic motivation if i want to make a difference in the world mm-hmm. and that's the way to do it then i found a lot of purpose in getting up and going to work like i genuinely and obviously they've always got bad days but on a macro level i'm genuinely feel purposeful in that journey and i think that's where i think people mix up um, or don't see purpose fullness aligned to happiness but for me purpose is happiness humans are made are built to walk uphill humans are made to face resistance right for me the opposite of happiness is not unhappiness it's boredom mm. right we are built to achieve things like built to actually push the rock up the hill so if that's the if that's the way for me personally actually getting up doing things that sometimes I don't want to do having that sense of discipline yeah. and and feeling like at the end of the day is for me day-to-day happiness I agree. But for not everyone, that's not for no, not everyone. No, that's the I, case, right? I think that is for everyone, whether they whether they've discovered it or not. I think purpose is is that is that happiness. Like there was, I'll talk very very quickly because we are running out of time. But like there's a study where they analysed happiness for people like throughout their ages. So this is a long study, like aged between sort of like 18 all the way up into 60 years mm-hmm. old, right? So this is a very long study. They haven't really done many of these before. And they did it across like a lot of like negative shocks in your life. So someone dies, okay, your happiness goes down, um, or like what else? Like or it goes the other way. Like you you had your firstborn, it goes up, mm. or like you just got a pay rise, it goes up. Like all these different things. The one, the 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 interesting thing was like negative shock and even positive shock. Mm. Your happiness goes up or down, but it always <laughs> goes back line. Mm. It always goes back to baseline. Anything that didn't go back to baseline was not having a purpose. And so they, they described it as unemployment, but I think it's actually down to not having a purpose, um, which is a very interesting thing for me. So I agree with you. I think if even if people maybe don't know themselves, it is boredom that's to unhappiness. Yeah, completely agree. And I think, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think even that journey of finding that purpose should be one that's embraced, right? Because if you know that purposefulness is is going to give you that day-to-day micro-level sense of happiness and achievement on a day-to-day basis, then embrace the journey of finding it, right? Again, remove the arrival fantasy. If I get this, then I'll get that. And sometimes people spend their whole lives finding that purpose, but actually they've embraced the journey of finding it. Yeah. So, because I think it's difficult to say, and I think we are in this culture now where people are pressured at 17 or 18 to say, right, find your purpose. It's fine. People are 17, 18, are pressured to say, right, find your purpose and go and study that at university and do that for the rest of your lives. It's, that's not always reasonable to expect, right? But if you have that sense of confidence in yourself, and I, my favorite quote about confidence is, confidence is the belief in yourself that you'll figure it out along the way. Mm. Which is why when people say, right, you've gone from property to social enterprise technology. How sense? Yeah. My confidence is, is in my ability to figure it out along the way. I'm not saying I know the spaces, I'm confident in my abilities to figure that out. Mm. I think if people can take that same approach with purpose and something I'll add is, is kind of my micro level purpose, which actually isn't based on motivation or impact on the world, <clears throat> a sense of duty, right? And I think I'll share this because a lot of people might see different sides to purpose. So my parents worked very hard, both of them being deaf. 
and I'm not coming from this country either. My dad was born in East Africa, deaf provisions in, in school, um, or at or no proper schooling. Came to this country, booted out of Kenya, etc. Came to this country and worked so hard to put food on my table and put a roof over my head that I genuinely feel such a strong desire, a sense of duty to give back to them. Mm. Right? Whether that's financially, whether it's by means of my service to them, whatever else it might be. And that for me was the reason I got into business in the first place was actually not because at 17 you don't change the world necessarily or I'm going to have such a big impact on the world. It was actually, let me look around me. I want to make a difference to these people because I'm so grateful for what they've done for me and my original purpose. And I'd still say this is part of the fire in my belly throughout my life, hopefully. It's providing for those people around me because of what they've sacrificed to, to make me who I am today. Mm. That's very beautiful. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's the same sort of journey for a lot of like first or second i don't know how like the generations work but mm -hmm. like the, the the immigration that comes like i think same same sort of story with me as well to be fair like it's yeah i if you want to dig very very deep that is the motive mm -hmm. of a lot of people that, that do certain things so let's before we wrap up i want to hear about this new this new company so yeah tech company it's very different to what you've done before yeah. <laughs> so as you said like you have the confidence to go into it you know willing to learn and sort of understand the, the space so why, why did you decide to go into technology? Yeah, absolutely. So this new company is Impact, um, which is the mission of the mandate of the company is much, again, more, of, I guess, more on a global scale. And when I go into this business, the question I ask myself is similar to what I asked before, right? How can I make the biggest difference in the world or the biggest impact over time? And post-pandemic, the answer to me was A, technology, and B, distributed networks. The world works in a very different way now. People work in a distributed way, healthcare, education, technology, through the blockchain. So I thought, we built this company, Impact3, which has an advisory consultancy unit and an incubator unit. The incubator unit is basically for us internally to continuously come up with ideas and continuously try to solve problems and roll that out to them. So our first and I guess our biggest project so far is, is One Club which is a digital members club connecting um, some of the most thought-provoking leaders, um, entrepreneurs, athletes, creators, and, and people at the top of their field, basically, and high performers to come together and share their learnings, to collaborate, to, to support each other, and more importantly, a real big social impact element. So that, for me, is kind of, for Impact3, is the 20-year is project where if we can gather thousands of the leaders across the world, have a core focus on social impact and personal development amongst those people and that will trickle down and have the biggest influence on the world um, but we're rolling out lots of other projects in there and for me that that was kind of the mission or the goal behind it is lean into the future of technology is but in a more feasible and consumer friendly way mm. but build solutions around it like one club it's the projects that we're starting now so yeah super excited all right nice so what what is next for for everything you're doing just so we can like wrap up the podcast so i think um not plan too far ahead, which is great. I mean, I've got into that space where being very open-minded, very experimental. Um, so continuing to build the businesses with an impact three yeah. and hopefully continuing to, to serve them. Actually, such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And pleasure. first time we're actually recording in this space. So quick shout out to, to Brixton Village Studios. How can people stay in touch with you and what you're doing in the future? Awesome. So best way is probably through Instagram at actually Ruparelia um, or LinkedIn. So drop me a message there or give me a follow and, and hopefully I can help. All right, fantastic. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, yeah.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed. If you did, it'd be amazing if you could leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. And, you know, at the beginning of the episode, I said the recording stuff in, in person now. So the production value on our YouTube channel will be really, really great. And we've got some big episodes coming up. So please do subscribe to our YouTube channel. The link is in the description. Thanks so much for listening again, and I'll catch you in the next one.